As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All of the things that we know about how education works and who it works for and how it works best. And now the challenge is to make sure that every single one of our children and every single one of our school systems is met with learning in a way and in a manner that helps them receive the best education possible for them. I'm John Bullock, and this is Education on the Rocks. I don't think schools are doing enough for our kids, and I'm tired of education being a political issue. Our education system is broken. I don't understand what the problem is. The education system works just fine for me. Like I always say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it seems like everyone is saying our education system is broken, so somebody better fix it. For years, the American public and politicians have decried the state of education in the United States. Endless reform efforts and enhanced accountability measures have stressed our public education system to the breaking point. Each week, over a glass of whiskey, our hosts tackle the education topics of the day and discuss issues that have long plagued education. This is Education on the Rocks. Welcome to Education on the Rocks. I'm your host, John Bullock, and I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and co-host, George Hegarty. George, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, just tucked in and relaxing on this late afternoon. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh, I want to take a chance to remind our audience that we weren't here last week, just in case you missed us. Uh, we each celebrated birthdays last week, and we had to restock our whiskey cabinets Uh, and also give us a chance to take a pause and take a sip and think about our previous five episodes. And I was wondering if there's anything from those five episodes that you think about or you reflect upon where you wanted to say something maybe you didn't get to say, or maybe it's a topic we haven't hit. You know, there's there's one thing, and I think we've discussed the evolving role of the teacher into and through the pandemic. And one of the things that has really substantiated who I am as a teacher over the past two plus decades is um, as a high school teacher, an English teacher, my knowledge base and literature. And I haven't really touched on that too much. And I think it's something that might change as we continue to discuss the role of teachers and training teachers into, um, into the future. And I just wanted to spend a little bit of time in saying that for me, knowing literature has been always a Um, kind of uh, an anchor that has kept me grounded in the classroom and beyond. Um, but I think that that might change as we look to education in the future a little bit. How about you? For me, I was reflecting on our most recent episode about rigor. And 
I was remiss in not talking about the issue of credits as it relates to rigor. So often in the public education system, we've equated the number of credits with the amount of rigor that someone experiences. So in our state, for example, it is celebrated that we have a 24 credit diploma. And in some districts in our state, students have to earn 26 credits or 28 credits to graduate. And what's important to know about that is the number of credits required to graduate in states across the country varies greatly from, I think, 16 to 24 credits. And when you look at universities, particularly the ones in our state, uh, most universities require a total of 15 credits and a high school diploma. And so I just sometimes think we have used the Carnegie unit for so long that we're accustomed to think that, that credits mean rigor, that seat time means rigor, when in fact, uh, that's not exactly what it means. And so we talked about that in episode five, but that was just a note I still had hanging out there that I wanted to, to, uh, to reiterate. Yeah, that notion that more is actually not necessarily better in, when it comes to education. Exactly. So this is called Education on the Rocks, which means uh, we're going to drink some whiskey and talk about education. What kind of whiskey are you drinking today? I've got some Buffalo Trace bourbon today and uh, pretty heavily watered down. I, I gave blood this morning, and so I'm trying to, uh, trying to watch it a little bit so that I'm speaking coherently throughout the hour. How about you? Phenomenal. Uh, I'm drinking uh, a Woodenville straight bourbon whiskey. It's out of Washington State. And uh, it's a pretty cool story about how they make it. They they grow the grains on the west side and then they uh, truck them over to the east side. The weather is a lot more harsh on the east side, so it stays in barrels uh, outside in the elements. Uh, and that's how they that's how it gets its uh, complex flavor. So uh, cheers to you and cheers to Woodenville straight bourbon whiskey. Cheers. One of the great things about doing this podcast is that we have gotten some uh, listener feedback. And uh, I want to share a little bit of that listener feedback with you before we talk about today's episode. Uh, we, we, we got this from a listener who said, thank you both for giving voice to these incredibly important ideas at this pivotal moment in time. And uh, there's tremendous value here for any educator or citizen who genuinely cares about the well-being of our collective students and communities. So uh, it was nice to hear from a, from a listener. Uh, about and we didn't, pay, we didn't pay this listener. So that was, yeah, that's, that's the highest compliment, I would say. Exactly. I thought it was a great compliment. And then we received from another listener who, we, while we don't pay, uh, happens to be related to me. Uh, <laughs> my, my father sent me an article and he suggested that I read it and use it for my after the ice melts so I can, and according to his quote, sound as intelligent as George. So uh, thank you, Dad, for that. And uh, uh, thank you, George, for making me sound less intelligent after the ice melts every day. <laughs> he stole my after the ice melts about uh, Joe Rogan deciding he needed to shake everyone's hand at the UFC thing the other night. So. Oh, my gosh. Could I, you know, they had people test positive before the fights, and then he's out <laughs> shaking hands. Uh, it was a, amazing. The world amazing. is a weird place. It is. It is. So let's, uh, let's talk about what, today's episode. Uh, today we're going to talk about the American school system post-pandemic, a new world order. As governors across the country begin planning to reopen their states, they do so amidst much uncertainty. And nowhere is this more true than with each state's public education system. NPR reported last week that while the governor of Montana approved schools reopening, many of the districts have elected to stay shuttered. This is the focus of our episode. We know that schools will reopen, but what we don't know is when that will happen, how the reopening will be affected by state budgets, 
whether parents will send their children back to school, and what the American classroom will look like post-pandemic. Today, we consider the public school system post-pandemic and its potential effect on every aspect of the American culture. So take a pause, take a sip, and join us right after this quick break as we talk about the American school system post-pandemic, a new world order. On today's episode of Education on the Rocks, we're going to talk about how schools might look post-pandemic. And so there's been a number of articles in the news about this issue. And George, you've been reading some of those. What, what have you found? You know, I, I've been reading a bunch about cuts and cuts as high as 35% across the country, but a lot of numbers ranging in the 20% to mid 20% range. And since you have background in this, I'm wondering if you could just talk a, a little bit and tell me a little bit about how schools are funded in the United States and maybe how much discrepancy there is between one state in another or one district in another? That's a great question. There is huge discrepancies across the country in the amount of funding that goes to education. There's also a great discrepancy in how that funding happens uh, and how it's allocated. But essentially, regardless of the state, schools are typically given funding through tax sources based upon the number of students that they have. And in some states, the tax sources are through sales tax, others are property tax, some income tax, and some excise tax. And so depending upon how a state chooses to fund it, there's, there's great variability in uh, how much is awarded per student to schools and districts. And so in, in our state, the heavy reliance on uh, property tax and personal income tax has created a number of limitations on funding. And, and traditionally in our state, it's funded in the bottom third by comparison across the country. I think just as a general sense of it, there are states where funding ranges from about $6,000 or $6,500 per pupil up to $18,000 per pupil. So there's a huge gap That's in the range. Huge. Yeah, exactly. And, and how much of that, how much do the feds kick in on, on state budgets typically? Well, it, it varies. It's an interesting deal, right? So in the Constitution, education is a state's right, and the federal government gets involved in education, uh, really in regards to special education and programs of that nature. There are other programs the federal government has been involved in um, where there's money attached. And so if you want the money, you engage in the program. And so federal government funding varies by state. Um, you know, locally, uh, it's a it's a it's a portion of it, but the the main funding source is the is the state uh, allocations. Obviously, during the pandemic, um, there's going to be funding from the the federal government to give you an idea. Of the school system that that I operate as the as the executive director, we have an annualized budget of roughly ten million. We're going to receive about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in federal CARES Act money just to okay. give you a sense of the magnitude. Okay. So as we look at this then, um, and, and if you think about in a state like ours, if property taxes and state income taxes down by 20%, what kind of effect do we see in the schools? What does that look like from an administrative standpoint? Well, locally uh, in, in our state, we've been asked to cut budgets by 
8.5%. The dilemma there is that the state is getting ready to complete year one of its biennium. So that 8.5% cut all has to come out of the second year, effectively making it a 16 or 17% cut from, from budgets. And the reason is, is that there's a, an expectation, a reasonable expectation that uh, property taxes will decrease, per, personal income taxes will decrease, uh, other types of taxes, whether it's gambling or cigarette or alcohol, other taxes may decrease, which means that uh, in our state, the projection is a, a $3 billion shortfall in the general fund, and education is a major portion of that. And so, you know, we're looking at potentially 16 or 17 percent cuts uh, in, in budgets. Yeah, and, and so when we look at that, I read an article this morning on the front page of our local paper, and it seems to be pretty indicative of what's going on regionally and probably nationally is the districts, school districts are in a hiring freeze right now pending this kind of the budget scenario that you're talking about. It's interesting from a teacher, a lifelong teacher, I've been in positions um, over time, especially when I move uh, because of the way that um, the hiring and firing practices go within within public education wholly is that uh, I've been in places where around this time of year, there have been a number of times when I'm worried about whether I'll be rehired and kind of the idea of being pink slipped in April and then maybe getting rehired in August. Is that something that you're thinking is going to happen um, over the next couple of months? I think that districts and schools are going to be hard pressed to figure out how to staff because there's so much variability in, in the budgeting amounts. It's interesting before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to speak to one of the local universities and to their teacher uh, candidates. And I told them how excited they must be to be entering education in a time when everybody's going to be hiring. In our region of the state, there was an estimate that there was going to be over 200 new teaching hires in, in this spring. And then Shortly after that, of course, we, we hit COVID-19 and the, and the closure and the shutdown. And now, not only is that hiring not going to happen, it's likely that people who have jobs might, in fact, lose those. And so I think one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to see districts right now try to conserve as much funding as possible from this year so that they have more going into next year so they won't have to cut nearly as much. But I expect that hiring freezes will be the norm. In some cases, we've already seen districts start to furlough teachers and furlough staff because they're trying to save money for next year. And what exactly does that mean? I've worked in a scenario where the furlough occurred, and it was it was essentially what they were, what the district was doing was creating a twenty percent cut, and we marketed it, or the district marketed it at the time as four is more because students were attending school four days and not attending school on Friday, and then teachers were were not working on Fridays. Um, how does how does the furlough work when we start reading about that in news stories? Well, I think there's a couple of important points here. One is that there's a difference between a furlough and a layoff. A furlough is when an employee is told that their services aren't needed for a specific period of time or a certain period of time, and that might mean that their work is being cut back. It might also mean that they're just their work isn't available right now, but it will be at some point in the future. Layoffs, however, are when uh, employers say we don't have a job for you anymore, right? And that job goes away and people get laid off. 
Right. And so those, that language sometimes gets used interchangeably, but th there's a difference between it. What, what happens in education is, in most cases, education budgets are roughly 80% personnel-based. And in some cases, they're 85, in some cases, a little bit less, but roughly 80% personnel-based, which means if you close down school for a day, that you're saving about 80% of your costs for that day. And so by eliminating days from the calendar, either by saying we're only going to go to four days, so uh, that means we can pay employees 80%, right? So we save 20% of our employee costs. So if you think about, um, if you think about a school district that, say, has a $100 million budget, and let's say 70% of their costs are in uh, personnel, well, that's $70 million. So if you can save 20% 20, 20 of that, um, you know, you're saving, you're saving $14 million, right? And For so, sure. And so that's why people are looking to, to do this, you know, to, to furlough people because it, it's, it saves money. It does so at the cost of effectively reducing salaries for people and reducing services to students and families. Uh, and so it doesn't come without cost. That's for certain. Yeah. And I think that those, those costs that, that we've talked about a number of times, you know, in terms of equity across school systems and across education, across, uh, you know, within the United States, that, that the effect of the kind of the net effect of, um, kind of the financial savings is from my perspective anyway, it's far outweighed by the effect on students and families, because if, if families are in a place where they've been they're in they're in a place where it's safe to go back to work and so they or they have been called back to work that it's not necessarily accounted for if those if their students especially when they have young students don't have childcare for a day and that's that's not a free cost to those families yeah, in those cases, the cost gets borne out in a number of ways, right? It gets costs borne out by the family, costs borne out by the family's employers, costs borne out by the the teachers and the staff of, of the school or the district. And so it has significant ramifications. And it's clearly understandable why it happens, right? I mean, if you're, yes. if you're in a business where 80%, 70-80% of your cost is personnel, the only way you can really save money is uh, through personnel costs. I mean, and that means... Either employing people, employing fewer people, paying people less, or not having them work as much, and and those are really the the few options that that districts have and schools have is uh, around altering personnel costs. Yeah, and, and especially now, I think that that if you go to a reduction in, for instance, if you go to a reduction in teaching staff for a particular school or district, the effect is that the classes get bigger. But now within the pandemic, and it looks like with extending social distancing and, and anyway from the things that I've read, is that this seems like it's going, social distancing at least is going to go into the fall, but you can't necessarily pack 45 kids into a classroom. And so I think it's starting to, that's starting to push our system in ways that it probably hasn't been pushed in the past. Yeah, I think it's got potential to radically alter the shape of schools because if we're going to engage in physical distancing for a significant period of time, and, and by all accounts, it looks like that may be what we face, I think it'll be interesting to see in the coming you know, two to five weeks as states start to open up, uh, how well they do uh, at avoiding another spike in infections and 
and that will tell us a lot about our ability to have more students in a space in the fall. But either way, I mean, we're going to face this issue of how do you physically distance in a school? Well, uh, it's going to be nearly impossible unless you reduce the number of students in each classroom, which is going to be exacerbated by the fact if you don't have enough students, you can't pay the teachers to be there. So you've just got this series of conundrums that builds upon itself. However, each of those conundrums is rooted in the idea of the traditional belief of how school needs to work, that it needs to work from post-Labor uh, Day to around Memorial Day, and it's got to be five days a week, and it's got to be you know kids in school from seven to three. And, and it varies by region, and there are some schools that start earlier and go later. But the idea being, you know, we, we have a traditional view of school, and when you overlay onto it the conundrums that we're currently facing, it seems like nearly an impossible task to figure out how to structure a school in the fall which means that you've got to start looking at other radical options for students and their families and for the community when it comes to offering school. Yeah, and you, and you sent me a, a story by Kim Hart and Allison Snyder about how teaching is going to transform because of the coronavirus. And I was struck by a statistic that the National Parents Union had been, had been polled in 61%, which to me is a massive majority are open to totally rethinking how to educate students. And so what you're kind of noting can be looked at as a dilemma or a massive opportunity. And I think it's worth thinking about that opportunity because the idea of transforming education is, I think, rooted in, or transforming any transition, or tradition anyway, is rooted in the idea that it sometimes, it takes some circumstances in order for people to be willing to change. And this seems to be a time that people are open to that. I think so. And I think that the change is both pedagogical and structural. And so one of the things people have learned in this pandemic and people staying at home is that do students really need to be in school for six or seven hours a day? You know, I've talked to some families that it's really great that I'm able to get our coursework done from, you know, eight to 10 or nine to 11. And then kids go play or we, we go on a family adventure. And given that not everybody is in that boat, right? We know, we also know families that are struggling and kids that are struggling. But I've heard from enough people to tell me that there are folks thinking about, well, why does my kid need to be away from home for that many hours a day? And one of the reasons we talked about earlier, right, is because there's a community need and an economic need for children to be somewhere so parents can work. But there are families for whom they don't necessarily need that. And so they may not desire to have their their kids gone all day. There will be families who are not ready to have students return to school because uh, they don't feel safe yet. And that's going to be an issue that schools have to deal with. And so as you look at those things and then you combine the idea that people are seeing, wow, there's a whole slew of resources available online for students and families, free resources and educational resources that people maybe didn't know about before now. And so it's going to force pedagogically us to rethink the role of the teacher. And for years, we've talked about the teachers changing to become a facilitator of learning. But as you look at schools across the country, most classrooms still have a sage on the stage that's the holder of knowledge. And in this changing model, 
every student has access to the knowledge or the, the basis of the knowledge. So now educators have to look at how do they facilitate that learning rather than be the deliverer of that learning. So structurally, there's a change and pedagogically, there's a change. What you mentioned is when we talk about resources that are available, the idea or what I see is the real challenge that's facing probably all school systems across the country right now is one, how to, how to make that accessible to students and then two, how to inspire students to be able to effectively engage in learning through what is for most of them a brand new medium that I think that that's, that is, or it should be the goal of school systems across the country is to, is to figure out ways to engage students in the things that exist because simply pointing them in the direction I don't think is going to create that um, community that they want for their, for their educational system. While some students I know would be perfectly content uh, to do totally independent learning, that, that to me seems to be a very small minority of people who want that. I think students value relationships with caring and compassionate adults that see their potential. And I think teachers will always fill that role in students' uh, educational experience and in students' lives. I mean, all of us, everybody listening to this podcast can think about, you know, some of their favorite teachers and likely those teachers were their favorites because of the way they built relationships with them. So I think that's going to be a constant. And we have to, as educators, embrace that part of the strength and use that as a way to motivate and engage students in learning that perhaps we didn't create but rather we curated and we're simply facilitating their learning, but we're their guide on the side. We're the person that they can count on when they get stuck. We're the person that uh, helps them access new information that maybe they didn't know existed, even though they had access to it. And so we have to take on this, this differing role rather than being the person at the front of the classroom telling everybody what they need to know. And I think that's just become so apparent as people get inundated in their emails with this learning tool and that learning yes. tool. There's, there's so many learning tools out there. Somebody's got to curate those and tell people what we're working on. And I think that's important for teachers to do. And I think that's a, an important role that teachers can fill because we can, we can look through all of the various resources and figure out what's going to be the best for this student to get to where they need to be. And I think that's going to be a, a new and exciting challenge for teachers. Yeah. And that in a lot of ways, that doesn't deviate too terribly from the sage on the stage model in that what I would the the best, the best examples of, of the sage on the stage is a teacher who is presenting information and then listening to and discussing that information or um, in my case, that literary text, I can model how, how my passion for a text and I can model how one analyzes it. But essentially, I'm just putting that artifact out there and then opening it up to students' commentary and voices. And I think that that's not too different from what you're describing in terms of curating an online or a hybrid uh, education. I think what's different about it, though, is that that concept is now exposed in a sense, right? I mean, students understand that, parents. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's understand that. And now teachers uh, clearly understand that. Even, even if that's a methodology they've used previously, in, in some sense, you know, it's like a magician revealing their trick, right? right. The, the trick has been revealed here. Uh, and now it's critical that we demonstrate the importance of facilitation and the importance of evaluation, right? We can evaluate a student's learning and thereby help them to uh, get to where they need to be. And I think that those, that concept, while maybe not new to some teachers or maybe many teachers, it's now out in the public. And that's a change uh, from, from people going into a school building, learning happening, and then exiting and going on with their life. There's an understanding that now, oh, wait, this can happen anytime. And oh, wait, here's another way to look at that. And, you know, I think back to my educational experience as a high school student, I was still using a card catalog and I had to get my information from a teacher, an adult, or I had to read a bunch of books, right? There wasn't I couldn't instantaneously access a piece of information. So the teaching was different and the learning was different. Well, now I can access any information. And depending upon my interest in that, I can dive deep and teach myself things and learn things that previously would have taken me much longer to do. But now all of our students and families can see that, right? And that, that a student can study the same thing at 2 a.m. as they can at 10 a.m. And it's still there for them at 10 p.m., right? That it doesn't just go away at the end of a school day. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. And to bring it back to myself, you know, my totally self-interested perspective is that one of the things when I, when I teach literature to kids is that many of them come in under the impression that there is some sort of what English teachers do is they expose a secret meaning <laughs> within a text. Right. And the first thing I say is like, this is not a magic trick. You know, there is no secret. What it is, is what we're doing is we're reading the text, you know, and we're, we're letting the, the language, this is something, it's a skill. It's not some sort of magic that you have to earn your 10th, you know, your 10th level wizardry um, skill set to go D&D &D on you. 
in order to execute, that this is something, it's a skill that we try to teach. And I think that the, the, what's vital about what you say is that the skill that students learn, the initial skill, and we can start teaching them at a very young age. And I read an article a couple of weeks ago, but I can't remember where it was from, so I won't try to credit or miscredit someone, is that teaching students about good and bad arguments and differentiating the sources that they're drawing information from, that's the skill set. Because the information is there, but there, as we know, there's a lot of bad information, especially digitally, and so to be able to differentiate the good from the bad is really important. I think that's really important because it, it it's part of this idea of teaching students the critical thinking they're going to need to deal with this you know voluminous information in, in today's digital age. They have access to every piece of information, good, bad, and otherwise. And helping students be able to sort out what is good, bad, and otherwise is a is absolutely a critical skill. Yeah, and that's when it's it's probably not coincidental that. When employers are surveyed about what they want from top employees, it is critical thinking skills. You know, it, it, it actually coincides pretty beautifully. Not many of them are really interested in their employees' ability to memorize stuff. <laughs> right. Know? Exactly. And, it's, and so that's going to – that all of that combined with what we're going through provides this unique opportunity for education to reinvent itself and reestablish – its critical importance in our community and in our world. We've talked previously on podcasts, podcasts that we've talked previously on our pod about the fact that one of the values that schools bring to the community is uh, they're a hub for the community. And I think that's critically important. However, this provides an opportunity for us to think about what about the education that's important in schools? And we have an opportunity, I think, to reinvent that importance and re-emphasize its importance in today's world. And part of that means we can strip our curriculum down to essential skills and knowledge. What are, what are things kids absolutely need to know and be able to do? And how do we get them access to materials that help them demonstrate those so that they're ready to be not just functional in this new world, but successful and thriving and curious and critical and creative in this new world. And to do that, we've got to strip curriculum down to those skill sets and then find student interests and let them put those skills to work in those areas of interest rather than strictly defining what they can do by periods of a day and days of the week. Right. And, and really, even within that, specific moments within a year where they're, if, if we're looking at standardized assessment that there are two or three times or sometimes even one time per year where it is you show up and those three hours or that hour determines how successful you are as a student. That I think um, having the opportunity maybe to shift uh, shift away from that a little bit and not to eliminate it because I do think that there is value in standardized assessment, especially when that skills assessment but not to have it be this culminating experience that has to happen on, you know, May 14th at two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And we need to do a whole pod or a series of pods on assessments, uh, large scale assessments, standardized assessments. Uh, yeah. And I have a, a love hate relationship with those things. And uh, I look forward to ex yeah, exploring them on a future, on a future pod. 
But one of the things that's evident in this is that we have to find new ways to assess student learning. I mean, I was I was re- reading tweets this past week about student experience with the AP assessments. You know, yeah. those, those are happening at home, uh, you know, and there's a different format than they've ever had before. And students, some students had difficulty getting their tests submitted correctly. Uh, and so it's a different measurement of learning and it has different barriers to students being successful. And it causes us to rethink how we assess and why we assess and what is it that we're assessing for. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the AP because I think that the college board with those exams this year was was put in a position that they didn't want to be in because it required radical change over a really short period of time. But I think the long term effect is that that exam structure, while it will most likely in 2021, that's going to take place on campuses again, I'm hoping across the country. But I would be shocked if they don't remain digital because it's been it's it seems like the kind of the pencil paper model has been strictly out of tradition and there's never been a catalyst for that change to happen. And I think the outcome of this, even though there are going to be significant um, hurdles over the next couple of weeks during this ten- this testing window. But I think that the long term effect is that we're going to move forward with that assessment for kids and it will probably make it more accessible to more students. And I think that's, it's a tremendous outcome from the pandemic, which is obviously a terrible situation, but a great outcome. And I think that that kind of innovation is tremendous. And I think that kind of innovation is necessary and needed. I mean, one of the ways that students can turn in their AP exam is they can take a picture on their phone, right? With the, with yes. the scanning tool and send it in. And when you think about that, and you think about the access students have to that kind of technology, and, and it's not ubiquitous, uh, and, and I don't you know, mean for these comments to sound as if they are, but so many students have access to digital technology on their phone, and the quality of that technology far surpasses the computers that you and I probably wrote our first papers on in college, right? Yes. Uh, that, <laughs> those phones can do anything. That students can write entire term papers researched, cited, uh, formatted, using their thumbs on a, on a smartphone. And so to, then to ask that student to take a paper pencil test, it's so interesting to me. I can't remember if it was the ACT or maybe it was the SAT, but one of the major testing organizations asked schools to spend time having students complete the bubbling portion of the test before the test. Right? Oh, they you, all do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do. that part where, I mean, because when I was a kid, bubbling test was just what you did. Like, I knew exactly yeah. how to bubble my name. And I can have, get an A plus on this part. Right. And now, and now we've got this process by which we're taking time to help students understand how to bubble them up, you know, how to fill in the right bubbles. And that's not a, that's not a student problem, right? That's not a student issue. No. That's, that's a technology and an adaption issue that these assessments have to go through. Yeah, it's almost like when you go into, and, and there are a few places, the airport's one that I can remember, where things still come out on a dot matrix printer. And I kind of look around, how, who even supplies the paper for those things? Did right, they, right. Did they buy two centuries worth of paper? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I think about bubbling, uh, it, re- it reminds me of a story of a good friend of mine from college. And this is a true story. And when I tell it, people still don't believe me. But 
I have a friend from college. His name is Brinker Gildersleeve. And he went to Tamapias High School. And oh, so, I know Tam. I know that. Yeah. Buddies who graduated from there. And so he and he tells he used to he did a little stand-up comedy when he when we were in college. And he used to tell the story about how he hated test day more than anybody else because it took him so damn long to get all the bubbles filled in. And on most of those, there weren't enough bubbles to get all the letters in his name or all the letters in his high school. And he, he was like, you know, always talking about, man, if my parents just would have named me Joe Smith, this would have been so much easier. You know, it's like, so it's sweet. It, like, why, why didn't I go to Davis High School? Why am I at Tamapas? <laughs> you know, and uh, so the, the, the bubbling struggle is real. And for kids that have lived as digital natives, that concept is completely foreign to them. Oh, yeah. And we get we get students who it's not a question of how long it takes, but that I have had to do one on one tutorials explaining the process of bubbling, because otherwise they'll circle it and put an X through it. All the things that the that you're not supposed to do, that's how they do it, because they've never experienced it before. And it was such it was such a constant within our education um, in the seventies and eighties, it's, that was the one thing that every student could do. Right. And so now we've got, we've got this opportunity to change that and get it into a technological setup that our students can understand and use. And I think that that's, that is, as you said, in this, in this crisis, maybe one of the things that we adapt educationally is we get more in tune with what student needs are in terms of access and and being able to demonstrate using their own tools and i sometimes when i speak to audiences about education i get questions like well do you do you teach students how to count back change right which i we've probably talked about previously about it's you know it's an important skill if you're counting back change it's uh it's a useful tool to teach students how money works but in a cashless society, there's limited value of that. But I spent, I, I can remember classes where we spent weeks learning how to count change, how to count change back. And it's one of those things that's an artifact of another time that doesn't, that doesn't exist today. And schools have to shift and change. And right now we're in the midst of what I think, what I think creates a possibility for some of the most significant change in education since Sputnik. And, and, you know, it's funny that you say that because what I see happening is the public school system has the opportunity and whether or not we'll seize it, I think, is going to be is going to be really interesting or to see who does seize it to. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Who kind of take control over many forms of education that kind of I think the digital education has been pushed out where there many districts have departments or offices that handle students who want to do online education. There's not really a great hybrid model, especially in the public schools that I know of. But I think this is the time that schools and districts will get to define that we do this the best and this is our plan. But I also think it's really vital in marketing that it's not a hierarchy, that an in-person education does not necessarily trump a hybrid education, does not necessarily trump an online education, that we have to build a system that says this is all education and it represents what we want you to be able to do and to know by the time you're done. And I, and I think that that's one of the most important things that our systems need to seize on is that we want to take ownership of the entirety and give it all value. I agree. And I think the hay to be made, is that a right saying? I don't know. I think, I think, so, yeah. I think we can make hay in the hybrid model because I think, you know, schools have, you know, despite, you know, all the warts and stuff have got the face-to-face -face education down pretty well. I mean, people are relatively happy with it. The The online piece, there are people that specialize in that. Now there's criticism about how accessible it is to all students and how effective it is for all students. But there's a model there. The model that doesn't really exist in very large scale is this hybrid model. Yes. And, and I think schools are going to be forced into it, to be honest with you, because we're going to see schools in the fall that have to open and limit the number of students. And students can only be there certain days a week. And it's going to mean that you can't just try and condense your face-to-face -face curriculum into a smaller time. You, you can't just compress right. it. You have to do it in a different way. 20 minutes on something. Or right. You have to, so you're going to have to d define what's the most important parts. You're going to have to find how do I utilize digital technology to give students background and access and practice? And how do I deliver, you know, how do I facilitate the learning when I have students face-to-face? -face? And it, they're going to be smaller groups of students. And we know that when we have smaller groups of students, it doesn't take as much time to deliver the learning, right? That in a one-on-one -on -one session, I can impart a skill or a topic to a student in far fewer minutes than in a one to 25 session. And so we're, I think schools are gonna be forced to figure out this hybrid model. I think what we're going to see, however, is some schools simply cut curriculum into half or parts and only deliver part of the curriculum. I think we'll see other places that try and condense and also in that process, then overburden students outside of school. But then I also think we will see some innovative schools that say, here's a way in which we can emphasize what we view are the important takeaways from the learning and personalize it for students so that they spend the amount of time they need with the resources they need in order to achieve the results that they want and that we want for them. And I think that the 
decades-long conversations about personalization, they are going to come to the forefront this fall when schools face the reality that we're, we may not all come back together in the traditional model for some time. Right. And, and from, the fu- from the funding model that you talked about earlier, schools need to figure that out because funding is based on, with funding based on students, you know, ba- basically their daily attendance, that schools need to figure out ways, especially if the, the number of students you can put in a single place is limited, about how to meet those students' educational needs in meaningful ways. And so it really does force innovation. It really does force innovation in exciting ways and gives us the opportunity to think about K-12 education from totally new perspectives, which are uh, potentially going to transform how our students learn, what our students learn, and I really think we'll end up benefiting them in the long run. And I think that's a great way to, to wrap up today's conversation is ultimately how do we restructure what we do, both in terms of the physical structure and the pedagogical structure, to ensure our students can achieve success in, in the future. And it's got to be student-focused. So however we get there, we've got to focus on the unique needs of students and ensure that we've got ways to focus on the inequities that happen in our system, emphasize personalized learning, and we empower students to own their education in new and unique ways. That, in some level, forced teachers to take on new roles and responsibilities. And I think ultimately we are going to see over the next six to nine months, either education radically shift or education fight really hard upstream to keep it the way it is. And I'm not sure how it's going to end up uh, nationwide, to be honest with you. No, uh, I'm not sure either, but I'm excited about the potential that we have at this moment. And it goes it goes without saying that it comes under a pretty heavy shadow of the pandemic. But I think that the, some of the issues, particularly around equity, are things that education has tried to deal with, but we kind of deal with it um, in the footnotes and that those have become central, central issues for us right now about how to get our most underrepresented and our neediest students the skills that they need to succeed and to support their families in ways that we we haven't system-wide uh, on a national level that we haven't over the past, you know, the, well, since the inception of public education. I've said many times through all this that crisis reveals all. And so what we're seeing laid bare is all of the things that we know about how education works and who it works for and how it works best. And now the challenge is to make sure that every single one of our children and every single one of our school systems is met with learning in a way and in a manner that helps them receive the best education possible for them. And I think that's uh, the challenge we have going forward. We would love to hear from you and would love to extend this conversation online. You can find me on Twitter at Speaks. I'd love to have you tell me your thoughts about where you see this headed and what struggles or successes you've had. George, if they want to hit you up on the tweets, where do they find you? George underscore Hegarty. And we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we'd both love to hear from you. We'd love to extend the conversation. We appreciate you listening in today. We're going to take a pause and take a sip and return for After the Ice Melts.
So we've spent some time sipping on our whiskey and talking about education, and now it's time to talk about what's next. So here's a segment we like to call After the Ice Melts. George, for you, what's next? What are you going to do after the ice melts? So this afternoon or this evening, I've got a book club. We've been reading Love in the Time of Cholera, the Garcia Marquez novel. And so we're going to get together and talk about that. We end up talking mostly about life in the time of the pandemic. Uh, but it is, it's a nice way to get together with people. The other thing I wanted to share, and I mentioned it at the top of the pod today, is that I went out and given the nature of being a teacher, every year uh, on our campuses, the, the blood mobile has come around and people, students have had the opportunity to donate blood and they have every year we've, we've had great turnout. But just with a teaching schedule, I have never been able to do it or I haven't done it since I was a student. And today, just because of what's going on, I made an appointment. I went down to the blood bank and they, I donated my blood and it was 30 minutes and it was totally pleasurable. And I really, and I don't know if that's because I haven't gone out much. And so any getting out is great, but I really, I think that that's something that if you're able to, I think that that's a great thing uh, for all of us to do right now. It certainly is an important way to give back. I've got to be honest with you. I have a near mortal fear of needles. And so my, the amount of blood I've given over time has not been very significant because it just, it freaks me out. But now might be a good time to, to do battle with that and go ahead and close my eyes and hope. And you'll love this is that, so of course I'm in full mask and uh, I'm sitting there and the phlebotomist is about to take blood. And one of the other, one of the other phlebotomists goes, Hey, are you a teacher? And I said, well, yes, I am. And then that leads into a five-minute conversation where I'm currently uh, her brother's teacher. And I had never taught her. She just must have heard my name. And so we're talking about that. I didn't even feel the needle go in because of, uh, because of the conversation. But it's kind of the small world that we live in, and it's pretty great. Quality about, distraction. That's awesome. Totally. I don't know. Yeah, they probably just looked me up and made something up. But who knows? <laughs> How about you? What are you doing after the ice melts? Well, this will probably surprise you, as it will likely surprise anyone who knows me. Uh, I'm actually going to hit the treadmill after this. I decided that I'm going to run a 5K by the end of the month. And now for those of you that are runners, you know that that's, that's not very far. And, uh, you know, it's probably not a huge accomplishment. Several years ago, I took up running and I loved it. And then as life changed and things went on, I stopped running. I, I got hurt. And so I haven't run in ages. So earlier this month, I said, you know what, I'm going to get on the Couch to 5K app and I'm going to do it and I'm going to run a 5K. The deal is, though, that app is nine weeks. It's 27 workouts, three a week for nine weeks before you go run this 5K. And I know myself well enough to be like, there is no way I can limit myself to three times and do this over nine weeks. I mean, it's probably the best way to do it, but I, <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm not one of these. I'm not a patient man. You're not one for moderation. <laughs> no, I, I'm actually not. That's very true. Uh, and so I decided I'm going to do the Couch to 5K in 27 days. I'm going to do one of the workouts every single day. So I'm going to condense, <laughs> I'm gonna condense nine weeks into 27 days. And so uh, I am... Couch to 5K to couch after your body ex collapses. Exactly. So I am on... Uh, I've completed 10 days, 10 straight days. Today's workout, 11 and I'm set up that if I do this right on on May you know May 31st I'm going to run uh, I'm going to run a 5K 
And yeah. uh, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be fast. Uh, I'm, I'm shooting for somewhere between 36 and 45 minutes. And uh, if I beat that, well, it'll be awesome. And I will report back after the ice melts how quickly that, uh, that run happens. Sweet. Maybe a little recording. We could put it up on the website. It would be nice. <laughs> no one, no yeah. one needs to see that. That's why the treadmill is in my garage and uh, no one gets to see, uh, see me attempt this feat. I do believe I'm going to have to run out in public at some point. Uh, so I'm, I'm preparing myself mentally for that. But for right now, treadmill, couch to five day, 5K, doing it in 27 days. Uh, and just, I'm just going to crush it and see what happens. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been awesome talking to you today. I appreciate it. Uh, We appreciate you listening to the podcast. If you enjoy this, if you'll go uh, onto iTunes, give us a five-star rating, share it with your friends, talk to us online. We want to make this podcast work for everybody. Uh, We want to incite people to have conversations about education and what it looks like in our, our communities. And by the way, if you are a maker of whiskey or a purveyor thereof, and you want us to try your whiskey, hit us up and uh, we'd be happy to uh, tell the world about your whiskey. So thanks for joining us today, George. Good talking to you as always, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Yeah, I loved it, John. Bye. Thank you for listening to Education on the Rocks. You can connect with us on Twitter. George is at George underscore Hegarty, and I am at Jay Bullock Speaks. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends. And please give us a rating on iTunes and leave a comment. Until then, look for us next week as we continue to discuss education on the rocks. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.